It's such a big transaction. It just seems daft to me to sometimes cut corners and take risks. I sometimes describe the legal work as like insurance. Insurance, we have to take out. When you buy a house or a flat, you have to be insured. And most of the time, you'll never need it. The chance of your house being struck by lightning is unlikely, you know, or a tsunami, for example. But you only need it when you need it. And if you haven't got it, you're stuffed. And it's a bit the same with law. You know, often these things, there won't be a problem, but you only know when the problem emerges. And if you haven't done the checks and don't know what you're buying, you might be fine. Um, but the problem is it will only come out when it's just too late to rectify. So again, I personally wouldn't dream of doing that. In the same way, I wouldn't dream of buying a property without a full survey. Some people rely on the mortgage survey. I wouldn't dream of that because there are all sorts of issues that may come out. I'm a great believer in delegating down to experts. You're listening to Expat Property Story, a podcast in which I share my story to smooth the way for you to have your own Expat Property Story. Hello there, and welcome to episode 31. That was the voice of Tim Bishop, who will be giving us the inside scoop on how best to nurture and develop a good relationship with your solicitor. Tim is not your stereotypical solicitor, having shunned the legal world after completing his law studies in favour of the world of music, where he had a close brush with fame in a band in the late 80s, before releasing half a dozen techno tunes on independent dance labels. But when it became clear he wasn't going to make a fortune from music, he returned to law and eventually joined a firm in Amesbury, Wiltshire, called Bonalax, owned by a solicitor called Tim Bonalak. They soon decided to change the name to Bonalak and Bishop, I guess because it sounded a little bit more professional than Tim and Tim. But the first Tim eventually left, and our Tim, so to speak, went on to expand the business by taking on six more law firms in Andover, Fordingbridge and Salisbury, which is where Tim spoke to us from today. As you can tell, these days Tim considers himself more of an entrepreneur who owns a law firm rather than a solicitor per se. His entrepreneurial nature has also led him to developing a property portfolio in both the residential and commercial sectors and is currently involved in an apart hotel project. But since his background is still law, it seemed appropriate that Tim's contribution to the podcast joke catalogue should be a legal one. Two lawyers go into a diner and they order a couple of drinks. Then they produce some sandwiches from their briefcase and start to eat. The owner becomes concerned and he marches over and he says to them, you can't eat your own sandwiches in here. The lawyers look at each other, shrug their shoulders and exchange sandwiches. <laughs> it is our first legal joke. Now, Tim's firm's website, which can be found at bishopslaw.co.uk, actually has a page dedicated to legal jokes. So if you'd like some more legal humour, you know where to go. Post ho challenge. Tim's chosen postcode was SP11LY which is in Salisbury. It's the best of three. You need to get two to win. I know you're into commercial property a little bit, Tim. Yep. There is a thing called the Area Retail Diversity Index. Have you heard of that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's not at a one. Well, there's a score for the Area Retail Diversity Index out of 10. Is the score for your postcode 3 out of 10, 5 out of 10, or 8 out of 10? The, the, what's it called? The Retail Diversity. Yeah, Area Retail Diversity Index. So I guess it's how diverse the retail units are in your postcode. Well, I think I'm going to go for out of 10. Is that a 10, yeah? Yeah, it's three, five or go, eight. Okay, I'm going to go for three purely because within sort of 500 yards, there's only actually one shop. Um, so hopefully a, 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 a three is what I'm going for. Correct. Another one on commercial property, there is a property for sale. Actually, you probably know it's the Coach and Horses. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. 
Is it on sale for $315,000, or $312,000? I tried to trick you with the 312. I thought the 12 was a little bit specific. So, yeah, yeah, you've won already, but I'll ask you the third question anyway. Okay. The average house price for SP1 as a whole, is it mm-hmm. 395000 405,000 or 410,000? 405. Tim, it looks like you have done your due diligence on your postcode. Congratulations. Oh, absolutely. I've, got, I've, I've gone through all the houses, created an average. I spent hours on that. Absolutely hours. <laughs> I asked Tim about his portfolio. It's not huge. The first thing I did actually was an accident. Well, actually, technically, many years ago, I did have a couple of rental properties. Ignoring those two, in, in recent years, and the first one I ended up with was a piece of commercial property. I got a branch office in Andover, and I was renting. And I suddenly thought, actually, I'd much rather buy something. This was about 12 years or so ago. And looked around and found a quite a cheap building. It was relatively new. So I bought that. The mortgage was about the same as the rent I was paying. But better still, I rented part out to the local radio station. And as a result, I didn't pay any mortgage. And so after about 10 years, a big chunk of the mortgage had been cleared. But more importantly, when I went around it for the first time, though I was looking for offices, knowing nothing about residential property, thought, actually, this would be really good to split into flats. Just the layout just looked logical. There was a front door and a back entrance, which went all the way up, and then I went to a central corridor, which split into two. And I could just see six flats. And then I came across permitted development. Uh, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Did the maths and thought, actually, this is going to be much better, frankly, as uh, permitted development than it would be as offices. I started uh, looking into it, and I did a commercial diversion. It was slow. And there were plenty of mistakes, but in the end, it worked out really well. And now I've got six flats, pretty much hands off because I've got a really good guy who manages them. Four are serviced accommodation, which works nicely. And two would be a bit more cautious, two as ASTs. Then I also did HMO. So that's broadly portfolio, but I'm in the process of buying two more properties. One I'm hoping to exchange this week finally, and that's an 11-bed B&B, which I'm going to turn into a 13-bed apart hotel, which hopefully will have two one-bedroom flats, four studios, self-catering studios, and seven double rooms. So that should be good. Hopefully, I said exchanging this week. And then also, I set up a SAS pension, a small self-administered scheme. I'm in the process of buying a small office to put into that. Um, Again, it's going very slowly because I had to go to an independent solicitor who was slow. And then worse still, we found it on for so long, the EPC was out of date. So that's dragging on. So uh, again, um, I'm not famous for speed. Right. Okay. But you have the day job, so... It's not so crucial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and to be honest, and that's one of the reasons why I've been slow, because you keep being dragged back into the day job. And I think for anyone who is looking to do both, it is something to bear in mind. I think it sounds great doing two things, but there is a danger that the day job somehow always takes control. I, I suppose it's the urgent rather than the important. Or the danger that the day job suffers. Yeah, absolutely. It's a balance. I don't think I've got it perfect, but at the end of the day, I've built up a decent law firm with a decent value and I'm building up a decent portfolio as well. So I can't complain, but I know I've made mistakes. Can we go back to that commercial property? So some units are on ASTs and some units are serviced accommodation, but it's all residential now, right? It's three floors, two flats on each floor. So the top four are serviced, the bottom two are still on ASTs. What kind of mortgage are they on? Because if you've got them half as ASTs and half as serviced accommodation, is that tricky? Good question. Technically, at the moment, they're not mortgaged. We're using that as capital to buy the B&B. So literally, the mortgage is going through as we speak. Then I'll have, a, I think, a 70% mortgage on it, and then that will fund the purchase of the new one. 
And then we'll do the same with that. And then we'll roll that over, hopefully, in a couple of years and do the same. Have they valued it on bricks and mortar or commercial or a mixture of both? Good question. They came back with four different valuations. And the top one, they said, was frankly what we thought it was worth anyway. But they said this is only in its current format being rented out. Unlike the HMO, which as you said, was, was commercial, 10 times uh, income, that was great. This one was really, although they said it was based on the rentals, to be honest, it is bricks and mortar. I recently asked somebody to look into finding me a long-term solicitor to build a relationship with. Mm -hmm. I personally think it's the hardest thing to find in your power team. Yeah. I haven't heard anybody say that, but yeah, I think you're probably right, yeah. So I got somebody to help me with it, and they did a bit of research, and they told me about something called conveyancing conveyor belts. Have you heard of that expression? No. I guess it's the idea that you've got a firm of solicitors and they're just basically ticking boxes and not really... Oh, factories. We form the factories. Yeah, yeah. We are very familiar with those. So what's your thoughts on that? I don't like being rude about my profession, but in general, they're poor. Our experience is they employ cheap staff and they do it cheaply. The disappointing thing is the actual price often to the vendor or the purchaser actually often is not dissimilar to what you pay elsewhere. The reason is they are often referred by agents and agents get a huge commission. You know, we've come across solicitors being paid as let us 300 quid for a transaction. You can't do it for that. You will make a loss if you do that uh, normally. A classic example of, of how bad some solicitors are at running a business. This was a few years ago. I met this guy probably 10 years ago. And at that time, his business was purely convincing, turning over about £5 million. So not insubstantial. But their entire model was based on cheap convincing, and they made money on client account. Obviously, money comes to a solicitor, you hold for two or three days. When interest rates are 5 or 6%, that was their model. It sounds incredibly risky to me. I wouldn't have touched it with a barge pole. And then lo and behold, a couple of years later, they went spectacularly bankrupt. So I think that the danger is with these people who do it too cheap, like any other business. If you have a cheap service, you've got cheap staff. If you have cheap staff, it's a poor service. Often we find clients use them once, but never again, because they're so slow and just not very good. So my solicitor, Saucer, also told me that because demand is so high at the moment that solicitors in general are able to cherry pick their clients. Would you agree with that? To an extent, anybody who employs people knows it's really difficult to get staff. And in law, it's no different. Quite a few people are retiring early and convincing is, is, is busy at the moment. So there are a lot of firms who will turn work away. In my opinion, they're the better ones, but there are some who don't and they take on far too much. And I think a lot of solicitors are too greedy. If you get a solicitor in the long term, they will sometimes tell you, sorry, I can't do it during the stamp duty boom. We always did it for existing clients, but new clients, sometimes we said, I'm sorry, we'd love to help you. I hate turning work away, but I can't take on more because otherwise if I do, my existing clients will suffer and I'll lose them. What is the etiquette around pushing your solicitor? If it's your solicitor, you can push them. If it's the other side's solicitor, you can't. It should go through your own solicitor. And it's worth saying sometimes with the other side, it's not always the solicitor's fault. I think everyone thinks, oh, the solicitor's going slow. But often there are plenty of reasons. We've had hassle from other sides sometimes. We've even had vendors who are directly with the purchaser get in contact with us directly and try to move us along. But we knew actually it was our client. Uh, and we can't tell that. We, it's confidentiality. So it's not always the solicitor's fault. I think people assume that. But there are so many other people involved. Lenders, in my experience, are really slow. The lenders uh, in, in the, uh, my B&B purchase have been horrendous. Some solicitors take on too much work and they shouldn't do. So to find somebody who's honest and tells you what the score is, I guess. Honesty is important. You go back to your, the phrase, the power team. You've got to have someone to build a long-term relationship with. And that's about trust. We'll be back with the podcast in a second, but I just wanted to let you know that we help high net worth individuals who perhaps don't have the time, expertise or contacts to find deals that stack right now. We can offer fixed rate returns of up to 12%. So instead of watching your savings get swallowed by inflation, why not schedule a free call via the link in the show notes to see how we might work together. 
Now, back to the pod. I asked him whether it was worth setting a completion date when you first instruct your solicitor. Could do, I suppose. All I would say is it's going to be on the solicitor's control, and that's why most solicitors won't like it, because there's a danger with over-promising and under-delivering. If it's a chain, it's completely beyond your control. Lenders, in my experience, are horrendous at the moment. Other third parties like search providers are pretty difficult. So there are an awful lot of other factors. If, on the other hand, you're buying for cash, there's no chain, um, you don't want um, any surveys, those kind of things, then it's not unreasonable, I guess, because it's far more within your control and the solicitor's control. But going back to your earlier point, yes, you can prop them, and I think it's reasonable to do so. Having said that, if you're looking for a long-term relationship, it's getting a balance. We've had clients who've been wholly unreasonable, you know, who've, who've chased us two or three times a day, then delayed, then chased us again, shouted, so we've sacked them because that's just unreasonable. And equally, giving a solicitor, for example, an urgent call about something that's not urgent on Friday afternoon isn't very clever because they're probably trying to sort out completions. So I think it's again a question of working together, getting someone you can trust, feeling you can talk to, and so you know, you know, if they're being really honest with you and said, there's a problem, it's going to be slow, you know the score. So I think, again, it's all about that openness and trust. But yeah, you, sometimes you do need to give them a bit of a kick. It's a partnership at the end of the day. So what is a reasonable amount to prod your solicitor? I'd like to give you an easy answer, but being a typical solicitor, I'm not going to give you a yes or no. You know, it depends on the circumstances. But again, if you find a relationship, you'll know when they say, yeah, okay, fair enough. If they're kicking back and you trust them, you'll know there's a reason. So I think, again, it's getting someone you trust who's reasonable, who if there's a problem will tell you in advance, then you'll have limited problems. And then it's more of a gentle nudge rather than a cattle prod. I heard you say something there that I didn't know about before. Friday's kind of a typical completion day. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, Friday afternoon, from 12 o'clock onwards, the average solicitor is, is probably busier than any other time of the week. Right. Um, if you need to contact them urgently, of course you can. But you know, if it's a routine thing that can wait till Monday, it's it's a kind of thing which a solicitor will appreciate or not appreciate if you're bothering them. If you're good to them, they'll be good to you. You know, we have some clients who we hate. That we still have. <laughs> but it's difficult. You know, let's face it, they're difficult. If you're really unreasonable to them, are they going to help you out when they can? Of course, all clients are equal, but we're human. So how else can we help solicitors? We can help you by not phoning on a Friday, by not yes, pushing absolutely. too much. This is your chance yeah. to. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Number one, respond quickly. The quicker you get back to us, the quicker we're going to move. That's number one. Secondly, sometimes we've had some clients, in fact, one contacted me yesterday, do you mind if we set up the file in advance? So, for example, when you set up a file, there are client identification things you have to do, money laundering stuff. Now, we use online systems, but still it takes time setting up the file. So they're saying, yes, we ought to instruct you, can we do this on day one in advance? So we said, yes. Won't make a massive difference, but if you've got the file open, you don't have to go through those delays. What else? Ask in advance, what do you need? Don't leave things the last minute. We've had clients who have suddenly told us at the last minute, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm going to go on my round the world trip. Is it okay if we do this tomorrow? We had a client who actually said that, you know, quite a big investor. Didn't help. You know, if they give us a little bit of notice, we could have set other things up. We got round it, but suddenly, instead of having time to do it in advance, suddenly having to drop everything to get that sorted. And that's not reasonable. So yeah, give notice. Get back to them quickly. Be nice. Don't overwhelm them. If they're routine inquiries, if you can make two or three at a time rather than one, one phone call is better than three. Obviously, if it's urgent, sometimes it needs to be done. And if you're not sure of anything, ask. I think sometimes people, particularly newbies, don't understand what's going on. And some solicitors 
I think, even good ones, sometimes forget that and just assume these things are so obvious that everyone knows it. Well, they don't necessarily. You do pay solicitors a lot of money. So if you're not sure, ask. I've seen people going online on, on online forums saying, I asked my solicitor this, but I didn't understand it. Asking other people. I've gone back and said, go and ask your solicitor. That's what you pay them for. Yeah, I think people suffer a little bit from imposter syndrome. Yeah, I think they do. They're always going to be something that you don't know about. We always carry on learning. So people shouldn't be embarrassed about saying, well, actually, what does that mean? Or what, what happens if? A lot of investors, they might want to invest in commercial property like yourself or residential property or mixed use. They may be investing in all those different kinds of properties. And we've talked a little bit about trying to build a relationship with one solicitor. How do you do that if because some solicitors are specialist in commercial, some are specialist in residential, no good ones are really specialist in both, are they? Is that fair? I think some are. A lot of people do one or the other. And I'd say the vast majority of residential conveyances just do residential. But there are an appreciable number of commercial property lawyers who do residential stuff as well. So my firm, for example, I've got my residential conveyances who don't touch commercial. I've got two commercial guys, but they don't do purely commercial. They do commercial and residential for investors because actually buying for investors often involves quite a commercial element. So for example, if you're buying a residential building in a company using bridging, there are loan agreements all over the place. These things are often more akin to commercial or options, even even more so, which are very commercial, but you can use them for residential. So with my guys, they do a bit of both. Um, but the deal was with them, but they both came on. I won't give you bog standard residential stuff. You'll do residential if they're commercial aspects of it. I think you can find people who do both. And obviously, if you've got one who you understand it does both, then that's best. That's why we set up a specialist property investor team to make sure that only certain members of my convincing team actually deal with investors because there's a substantial difference. It's a mindset. So perhaps the answer is to find a firm that has specialists in both. Yeah, I think so. And also firms that understand property investors. Even when you're buying a buy-to-let in your sole name and there's no commercial aspect, the approach of investors is different from Joe Public. So for example, if I'm buying a house on the local estate and there's a chain, I'll say I'm in a hurry, but the chance is I'm not really. You know, it, it's not urgent. Whereas for, for an investor, it might be very urgent. They may lose the deal. They may lose the funding. When they're urgent, they say they're urgent. The chances are they really are. As I think from Joe Public buying the estate, who you know could be a bit annoyed if they can't be in, in, in a few more weeks, but it's, it's not a major issue. But with an investor, they may lose the entire deal. So that's another reason we don't have our residential events and dealing with investors, because there is an increased need for speed, I think. Freehold and leasehold conveyancing can be tricky to say the least, as leases are not standardised. So this is where it really pays to have a good solicitor on your side. You might be surprised to find out what lies hidden in your lease. Ground rent has become very contentious uh, of late. It's quite common these days for ground rent perhaps to increase by the rate of inflation. I'm old enough to remember the 1970s. Now, in the 1970s, inflation was huge, very high indeed. And so it wasn't unusual for leases created in the 1970s to have a clause about doubling every 10 years. Now, people think that's horrendous, but actually back in the 70s, it wasn't. Because if inflation was running at 10, 15%, actually doubling every 10 years wasn't unreasonable. It was probably a bargain. So there are plenty of leases out there with that doubling clause. Of course, you've got to get the wording right. And a particularly freeholder who uh, uh, we used to act for with enormous numbers, many thousands of freeholds, actually showed me the original lease. And I've actually fell off my chair, had to read it three times because the wording was wrong. What they were trying to do was say it was supposed to double every 10 years, which is not unusual. But in fact, a couple of the words were put in the wrong place as a result of which actually every 10 years, it would increase by a thousand percent. In other words, it, it would double every year. You had to read it three times to make sure it was just a couple of words out of place. Now, not only was this actually an original lease, 
But so this guy told me he had another 700 of them because obviously there was part of our development and some solicitor being clumsy, produced one and then copied them all. And no one spotted it. And he said to me, you know, there's no way I could ever enforce this because, you know, the Sunday papers we camped out on my lawn is the most evil landlord in the country. But he said, what will happen when someone notices it? I'll negotiate and they'll have to pay a premium to replace the lease and I'll make a lot of money and the solicitors will get sued. But yeah, when I read it, it was actually horrendous. So a thousand percent in 10 years. Yeah. It's a bit unscrupulous of the guy though, isn't it? To say he was going to like make money out of it. Freeholders are freeholders. Um, You know, I'm afraid to say, you know, uh, I'd love to live in a world where everyone was kind and nice to each other and never said a rude word, but I'm afraid it's not the world we live in. If if the mistake's made, a lot of people will take advantage of it. You know, I'm not saying our clients are good or bad. They're our clients. Did you say freeholder or freeloader? (laughs) Freeholder. Okay. Just checking. Perhaps you'd like to tell us about your property expert panel. Oh, yeah, that, that's great, actually. Again, I always enjoyed networking pre-lockdown, and I particularly enjoyed the networking part and, and some interesting talks. So what happened when, obviously, lockdown kicked in? We got together with a few other people and decided to do an online session, which was basically a live Zoom Q&A with no sales, no preparation. It's simply people sending in questions, either in advance or on the day. And it went well, and so we did it again and again. I think we've now done about 27 of them. So it's every month broadly. Now we had a couple of months we did too, but we went back to one a month. And I think something like between 100 and 200 people turn up every month. And last time I checked, something like 20,000 people had seen the recorded version. It's popular and it goes down well. It's free and it's live. It's got a lot of humor in it. Basically, it's me, a specialist property accountant. We've got a cracking builder who uh, is really interesting. Uh, you know, lots of really practical, useful tips ranging from EPCs to you know, what you should be doing in terms of global warming and improving your property to problem with lagging and roofs, all sorts of things. We've got uh, someone from the NRLA who's very good on tenancies. And we've got Bromley Verncombe, who's well known as a property trainer. All of us have our own property and it works really well. It's good fun and people seem to enjoy it. We, we learn every day. And as you see, I don't know everything, but I've, I've got people who do normally. So yeah. But the one thing I really do like about the property community, it's unlike any other business sector I've come across. So many businesses are... Dog eat dog. Yeah, I've never known another sector. And that's why I love it, because it suits me. I'm very open. And, and I love the openness of the property community. It's, it's, a, it's a sharing, giving community. The Q&As, the, the Facebook channels, this kind of stuff. People are genuinely keen to share. Somebody says, can I have some help? And, yeah. and some will, will pop up and give them yeah. sometimes hours of their time free of charge. It's fantastic. It's like Bronwyn says, it's a very level playing field, property. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's no snobbery. Um, the risk there, of course, is because you haven't got, um, uh, I suppose, any, um, apart from solicitors, you don't have people who are qualified. So you do get a few sharks in there occasionally. And there are some horror stories where people get ripped off. But uh, but in principle, you know, uh, I, I think it's great. It's a great, warm, helpful community, which is uh, held up as, to me as an example of what business should be. So I didn't know that it had a recorded version. That's what I was going to ask you, because it's, it's always in the middle of the night for me. So I've never been able to <laughs> to, to uh, drag myself out of bed for that. Yeah, I think all of them are, are down on the YouTube channel. Run The accountant's uh, YouTube channel, he's a guy from Optimize, Simon Mishevitz. Um, it's on his channel. Yeah, and a lot of people, I said about 20,000 people watch them. And the full version is on YouTube, is it? I always see clips of it, like one minute, and I think, oh, I'd like to have seen the rest of that. Yeah, no, the clips are put out, I think, you know, as, as a publicity yeah, kind of sure. thing to get more people along. But yeah, the full version should be of every single one we've ever done is on YouTube. Tim, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. And if people want to contact you, what should they do? Well, you can go to the website and have a look at bishopslaw.com, or you can email me at tim.bishop at bishopslaw.com, bishop with an S and law, or contact me via Facebook. Always happy to talk. Tremendous. Three things to note from today's show are, firstly, not to be afraid to ask your solicitor for clarification if there's something you don't understand. You are, after all, the client. Secondly, when dealing with your solicitor, try to send all requested documents in one go as far as possible. 
It'll make things much easier for everyone and will help you to establish a long-term relationship, which you will need as your portfolio grows. And finally, try not to contact your solicitor on a Friday, which is often completion day and therefore the busiest day of the week for solicitors. This week's exotic listener location is Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, where my wife and I tasted durian for the first and only time. For anyone that doesn't know what durian is, it's a fruit that smells so disgusting that it's banned on most airlines. It actually tastes a lot better than it smells, but not quite good enough for me to try again. So if you're our listener from Malaysia, don't be shy, get in touch, like one of our listeners from New Zealand did after I picked that country for last week's exotic listener location. Her name is Joy, and she also kindly left us the following five-star review on the podcast website. Joy said, I love it. I have recommended it to many friends and family too. The content is fresh, relevant, and really topical for a lot of expats, the ones I know. Keep up the good work. Thank you for that, Joy. It is much appreciated. It turns out that Joy and her partner moved to New Zealand in 2017 and have actually built a portfolio over there and are now looking to return to the UK to start one there too. So Malaysian expats or anyone else for that matter, please get in touch and let us know about your portfolio or leave a review like Joy did on the podcast website www.expatpropertystory.com. Now I'm sure you've heard the expression fail to plan and you plan to fail. Well, we're taking that literally next week as we make the short trip from Salisbury to Portsmouth to talk to town planning expert John McDermott about, well, planning of course, so don't miss that. As ever, please remember to rate, review and subscribe and if you know anyone who you think would like to know more about building relationships with solicitors, then share the show to spread the word. You've been listening to Expat Property Story. Story.